Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, I'm Brenda Newman, and I'm a medical student at Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell. I co-host the Specialty Spotlight episodes on the Joma podcast. The Specialty Spotlight episodes are geared toward anyone who is interested in learning about different medical specialties. In this episode, I'll be interviewing Dr. Tal Weinberger. Dr. Tal Weinberger recently assumed the role of Director of Psychiatry at ChemEd Health Center in Lakewood. Previously, she was Clinical Associate Professor and Outpatient Medical Director for the Psychiatry Department at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, and also maintained a secondary faculty appointment in the OB-GYN department. She is the founding director of Jefferson Psychopharmacology Specialty Services, a specialized outpatient clinic providing supervision, teaching, and clinical care. Dr. Weinberger completed her undergraduate studies, cum laude, at Yale University and attended medical school at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. She completed her psychiatry residency at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and a fellowship in cognitive behavioral therapy at the University of Pennsylvania. She is a consultant for the perinatal psychiatry consultation line for postpartum support international, consulting with providers on clinical questions in perinatal psychopharmacology. She lectures and has several publications in the field of women's mental health. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Weinberger. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, So I want to start with why did you choose a career in medicine and what characteristics make one a good fit for a career in medicine? That's it. It's a really great question. Um, I um, really went to medical school knowing that I was going straight into psychiatry. Um, and so that was really, you know, kind of what I had in mind the whole time. Um, and so I can talk a little bit about why I chose a career in psychiatry. Um, but first to like focus on um, what characteristics make somebody like a good fit for a career in medicine. Like that's a that's a very broad question. And I think um, we're a very diverse field, um, and, you know, different people who go into different specialties have different strengths and different skill sets. And, you know, I think people find that like, you know, their med school classes, you know, there are a lot of people who they have a lot in common with and a lot of people who they don't have a lot in common with. Um, I think then actually, you know, what happens next is that, you know, people, um, sort of take their strengths and their focuses into their training programs. And then like the training then sort of amplifies and, and reinforces like those pre-existing traits for some people. Um, but, um, you know, I think what, um, a lot of us have in common, I think, especially with Vex women going into medicine is it really, I think it really does have to be a calling. Um, and you have to like really, really want it. Um, because it's, it's really hard to manage all the challenges that, you know, you're gonna face in the, um, long road of medical training if you're not really driven by that motivation. Um, but also I think at the same time, sort of being able to maintain the, like the long view and realize that like, 
there are going to be some difficult times that are interspersed with the really rewarding times. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of people who are successful in medicine are really able to sort of maintain that like dialectic of like being really idealistic and driven by that on one hand, but on the other hand, like really like having sort of the work ethic and the stubbornness and the dedication to just like keep going um, and moving forward, even when we aren't necessarily able to realize our ideals, you know, either because the system gets in the way or for whatever reason, people aren't able to meet us halfway, even when we try really hard to help them, you know, those can be really hard moments. Um, and, um, so I think sort of that combination of idealism and stubbornness is, is really, really important to success. I like that. I never thought of it that way, but it makes like a lot of, it kind of like is very true in training as like, at least I'm experiencing. Um, can you walk us through a typical day for you as a psychiatrist and tell us why you decided to go into the field of psychiatry? Okay. So, um, you know, my journey towards, you know, where I am now actually was not, you know, I couldn't have necessarily predicted it. I really, like I said, I went to medical school knowing I wanted to do psychiatry, but I really like thought I was going to be like a hundred percent, like a clinician. Like that's what I want. I just wanted to be a clinician. Like that's all. Um, and I still love being a clinician. I love taking care of patients. I wouldn't give it up for anything, but, um, sort of as I've, gone, gotten more experience and seen more, um, I've really, I think, come to the conclusion that it's also really, really important to think about systems of care in a more systematic way um, and um, work on overcoming barriers to care, increasing access to care. These are all like huge, huge, huge problems in our field. Um, and um, so I have sort of worked my way into a more administrative role over the course of my career while still maintaining a really prominent clinical role. Um, so right now I'm outpatient medical director um, for um, our department of psychiatry at Jefferson. Um, and over the years, um, I've been involved in creating and like now I supervise a bunch of teaching clinics that are really like really modeled after the the um the clinics that I trained in in residency so these were not my ideas but I thought they were a great training um model um and so I um brought them over to Jefferson um where we have one like attending physician supervising several, usually, you know, three um, senior residents who kind of have their own caseload and are seeing patients simultaneously, and then, um, you know, present the case to the attending who then, you know, does clinical teaching and then sees the patient. And it's a way to really expand access to care because that way I, I see three times as many patients. Um, and so we really have much, much, much more access. Um, and it's also really a great way to improve our resident education because there's a lot of like direct clinical teaching. So we started in this model about 10 years ago um, and with one clinic and now we have 11, um, a combination of general clinics and specialty clinics. I supervise two of those clinics. So I have um, some general clinics and I have a women's health clinic as well, where um, 
I supervise residents who are interested specifically in women's mental health. Um, and, you know, we see women during pregnancy and postpartum and kind of at other stages in their reproductive life. Um, I also supervise intakes into our clinic, and that's sort of in the same model of like direct supervision. Um, I have my own patients um, that I see on my own. Many of those women, many of those are women um, who, again, are sort of struggling with um, issues in the reproductive life cycle. Um, and I also spend time doing what we call indirect supervision, which is more like asynchronous supervision um, that plays more of a role in like psychotherapy training. So um, it, there's not as much of a role for kind of like direct supervision and psychotherapy training as much. You know, the the trainees will see their their own patients and then kind of present the case later and, and will provide supervision. And I also do a lot of sort of general case management supervision. Um, and then I also have administrative duties for running the clinic. So which involves like, you know, troubleshooting specific kind of complicated clinical issues and working on long solving long-term systemic issues. And so that's, that's, that's sort of my week. I do some combination of all those things. Um, I will be transitioning. Um, I've been at Jefferson for 14 years um, and um, oh, most of my career. I'm going to be transitioning to Chamed in April, right after Pesach, where I'm going to be the director of psychiatric services. Um, and the goal there is to really build a system of care um, in Lakewood, which is currently a community that really has very little in the way of psychiatric services. Um, it has, there's a lot of great therapists in Lakewood, but there's very, very minimal psychiatric services. Um, I actually see a lot of patients who come to me in Philadelphia from Lakewood. I know a lot of those patients go to Manhattan from Lakewood for care. Um, and so uh, I'm really, really looking forward to the opportunity to, um, you know, kind of take my experience and again, continue to treat patients, but really sort of build a new system of care. So um, why did I decide to go into psychiatry? Um, like I said, I really went to med school knowing that I wanted to go into psychiatry. Um, when I was in college, I was really involved in running a soup kitchen in the inner city. And we had a lot of clients, unfortunately, and, you know, this is certainly still the reality, a lot of our clients were really severely mentally ill. And, um, you know, especially in the first year or so that I was involved, I had really more opportunity to just sit down and talk to people. Um, and I just found, like, the illnesses and the issues that people were struggling with to be, number one, just so compelling and tragic and needing of, you know, people who were going to, you know, help them address them. And also just so fascinating, um, you know, the concept of a disease that like affects thoughts and feelings and can distort them to the point where like in extreme cases, it can even turn people against people that they love. Um, it's just to me seems like the most fascinating and tragic thing um, that I can imagine. Um, all of my experiences in medical school, you know, really reinforced my interest in psychiatry and in mental illness. Um, I remember in particular um, seeing a woman with postpartum psychosis. She actually, she didn't have postpartum psychosis at the time that I saw her, um, but she had had a history of postpartum psychosis and she had actually attempted to harm her baby um, when she was 
ill. Um, fortunately, this is not always the case, but fortunately that story had a, had a happy ending. She did well with treatment. She, um, developed, you know, she, she took care of her, her daughter. They had a very close relationship. Um, but sort of the, the whole idea to me that like, this was somebody who really like wanted to be a good mom and was like clearly really capable of being a good and loving mom. And like, yet like this horrible illness that she had, like actually caused her to harm her baby, um, just seemed like the most tragic and compelling problem to be solved that there was. Um, so, yeah. Um, can you tell us how you ended up in the field of women's mental health? I think you kind of answered that right now and how this has shaped your career. So actually, I really didn't like graduate residency thinking I was going to do women's mental health. Like that wasn't like really like prominent on my radar at that point. Um, it was definitely one among many interests, but I really like kind of left training thinking that I loved everything in psychiatry and I really just wanted to be a generalist and like do like as much of everything as I could. Um, and I still love general psychiatry and, you know, love treating all sorts of, all sorts of problems that, you know, that, that we see. Um, but I, it, it actually, it happened that um, a lot of women in the Orthodox community were referred to me, which makes sense, you know, really as a, you know, kind of culturally sensitive referral source. Um, and it turned out that many of them were pregnant or were planning on becoming pregnant. Um, and so I just wound up seeing a lot of pregnant women and I wound up just, you know, learning more about prenatal mental health just in order to be able to take good care of my patients. And I really got hooked. Um, I just, I, I, I'm fascinated by this population um, because first of all, it's like just such a uniquely vulnerable period in a woman's life where she's like, just number one, potentially really at, at, you know, higher risk, um, for some women that at other points in their life, um, and also the stakes are really much higher. Um, and the problems that we see really in general practice of psychiatry, like pervasive, really intractable problems are, I think, really amplified in the field of women's mental health. So like access to care is really, really, really a tough problem. And it's even tougher in the field of women's mental health. Um, like uneven application of evidence-based standards is a tough problem in psychiatry. And it's an even tougher problem in women's mental health. Um, stigma is a huge problem in women's mental health. Um, and so just sort of all of these, these compelling problems were even more compelling. Um, and it's also, I think it's really a, it's an opportunity to really affect two lives. Like sometimes, you know, often even more than two lives, often you affect the whole entire family, but really to profoundly affect two lives. Um, so those are, yes, those are the things that really drew me to the field. During the postpartum period, it could be like very overwhelming. Um, like I think you discussed about it being like a vulnerable period. Uh, so what advice would you give pregnant women to help them prepare for like the postpartum period? 
Okay, now that's a great question. And I think there is a lot, fortunately, there's like a lot, a lot of information out there now, a lot more so than there was, you know, kind of when I entered the field, which is amazing. There's like so much more awareness of perinatal mental health than there used to be, um, which definitely, you know, helps with problems like stigma and, you know, lowering barriers to um, to care. Um, I do think that unfortunately, women do still sometimes like get the message that like focusing on themselves and on their care like is like sort of a selfish choice and that like they you know that kind of have to make a, a choice between themselves and their their baby um and th that honestly like when you actually look at the reality of our field and the data that we have is just not a fair way to frame the problem like it's not even like it's an unhealthy way of thinking it you know we could say that as well and you know certainly you can make that argument but it's just not true because what we you know i think often the conversation about treatment during pregnancy and postpartum is sort of framed around the issue of, well, okay, if I accept this treatment, if I take this medication, what are the risks to my baby of like exposing them to this treatment? Um, and that's sort of where the conversation starts and ends. And I think what we've really seen from really decades of a lot of really compelling data is that um, we really need to think about especially depression, but other, you know, mental health issues as well during pregnancy and postpartum is really similar to the way we think about other medical illnesses. So in other words, like if we had a pregnant woman with diabetes, we'd want to choose the safest treatment for her, but we would never, ever say like, let's not treat the diabetes because we don't want to expose the baby to medication. And the reason we wouldn't say that is because we know that exposure to untreated diabetes is very dangerous and much more dangerous than exposure to a safe, you know, the safe medication that we would choose. So what we've really seen is that depression is is kind of the same and um and other other mental health issues are are also similar and that um really like exposure to untreated illness has really very, very clear developmental effects on the baby that can be quite negative. Um and so really, you know, I think this can be freeing for a lot of women to really understand that actually the choice to take care of yourself is actually often the better choice and the safer choice for your baby. And that, you know, kind of, it's not like, well, I need to kind of choose to like white knuckle it to protect my baby because that's not actually what's happening. Like treating the illness and maintaining um, health and stability is actually the healthier choice for your baby. Um, and I think that's great, like, the great, like, and, like, thought also, like, just, like, I feel like there's a lot of stigma around, like, taking any type of medication, not just, um, psychopharmacology, but also, like, any type of medication in pregnancy, and I think, um, taking care of yourself, like you said, is really taking care of the baby. Absolutely, absolutely. It can, it can be really quite liberating for people to, to hear that. Um, during your training and career, how did you balance your career and family life? What advice would you give to new mothers in medicine? So that's a great question. Um, so I have 
Thank God I have six wonderful children. Um, three of them were born in medical school. Um, I did medical school over the course of five years um, in order to, you know, make sure that I had time um, with my three children. Um, and thank God, like I had really amazing, amazing support, you know, both at home and in school. Um, I was the only Orthodox woman really in my entire medical school. Um, but really, really thank God, like people were wonderful. Um, my fourth child was born in residency. Um, and then my fifth, actually, I spent a short period of time, um, just like doing exclusive private practice um, part-time. And so my fifth was born when I was in part-time private practice. And my sixth was born when I was a junior faculty member at Jefferson. So interestingly, right, I think people ask like, you know, when's when's the best time to have kids? And um, I, I, my personal experience, and this doesn't extrapolate to everybody, but to the extent that it can be helpful, I will share it, which is that actually the easiest time to have children was in medical school. Um, interesting, really, really, like my fifth, who again was born when I was like working like probably 17 hours a week, I think about in private practice. Um, that was my hardest. That was definitely my hardest pregnancy and my hardest you know, um, postpartum period. I mean, part of that was him. He was just a really, really tough baby. He didn't sleep. He had a bunch of, you know, thank God he's fine, but a bunch of medical issues during his first year of life that really needed a lot of close management. Um, but what I found for myself was that when I was in medical school, really my only obligation was to myself and to my own learning. I didn't really, like, nobody else was relying on me professionally um, in any capacity. And so that in many ways, that was really freeing because that was kind of the only thing I needed to consider in terms of, you know, kind of the balance. Um, I think then, you know, after that, um, having a an external structure where there was sort of a coverage system in place that sort of existed and that I was part of for other people and they were part of for me was sort of the next best thing because it was it existed you could you know kind of step out and rely on it um and then like with my fifth when I was in private practice I had you know had somebody covering for me but you know it, it was much much harder to like create boundaries when I had to create them myself. And there was sort of no system like behind me doing that. And it was really harder sort of not to, you know, kind of get like, have those boundaries be, be blurred when I was kind of immediately postpartum between my, you know, my work life and my home life. Um, I feel like in general structures served me well, and I know that's not true for everybody. I think, I know there are people out there that love to sort of, you know, create, do their own thing and create their own thing and, you know, have wanted to work for themselves their whole lives. That's not been me. I really value having, you know, external structure where, you know, I'm working for a large system where people rely on each other. And also, you know, I have administrative responsibilities, which is another, um, I think another big part of sort of for me managing my life right now because administrative responsibilities really allow flexibility, right? I mean, I always I I 
have to work all the hours that I have to work, but I can choose to, you know, take my kids to a doctor appointment during my admin day and work at night. Um, that's, that is always an option. Um, and so, yeah, so I think for me, sort of the, the structure of a system was really very, very helpful. As a DROMA board member, can you discuss a little bit about the benefits that physician trainees and pre-meds gain from joining DROMA and what the public could also gain from like using DROMA as a resource? Yeah, so Joma is amazing. I love Joma. Um, I love the concept of concept of Joma. Like I would have just like it would have helped me so very, very much. It would have been so incredible to have an organization like Joma like available to me when I was in training. Um, you know, I really again like had a, so much mentoring and support and um shout out to my husband who, you know, it, during my internship year often, you know, spent many Sundays with three kids age four and under all by himself. Um, but it it would have really been amazing to like have an organization of like-minded Orthodox women who were, you know, had gone through similar experiences to me or who were going through similar experiences to me. Um, so my daughter actually is currently applying to medical school. Um, she's like in the middle of the application process right now. And it's like really like amazing for me to watch because like so much has changed, but yet so much has stayed the same, right? It's like a cliche, but it's true. Um, there's really like a lot of the old stigmas and stereotypes and like really legitimate concerns also that people have about a career in medicine are still there, although many of them really, you know, have shifted quite a bit, um, which I think is number one, you know, part partially due to Joma's efforts. Like, I think, you know, that's, that's, at least partially a reflection of the amazing work that Joma does in the community. And also I think really evidence that um, there's more work to be done and, you know, Joma's the right organization to do it. Um, in terms of the public, like we run really some amazing public health health initiatives and they're run like by women who are like powerhouses. Like they really, um, our, our members are like women who are used to like just seeing problems and unmet needs in their own lives and like just, you know, like solving them or trying to solve them. Um, and, you know, these women really like, they bring the same energy and creativity to their work in Joma. And so it's kind of like, oh, like here's a problem, like, let's figure out how to tackle it. It's like, it's it's really such such amazing energy. Um, I also, you know, we, we just had an amazing symposium, um, which I had the opportunity to co-chair with an amazing group of women. Um, there's really, we have a lot of really amazing educational initiatives, both for um, doctors and for, for the public. I wish Joma was around now as a pre-med, but I really did benefit from it as a medical student. I think I... I see the difference from like when I was a pre-med and the resources I had and now that like, you know, I ha have DOMA and so many more resources as a medical student. 
that's really cool that you could like actually see the difference. Yeah, I think that as a pre-med, I had to go search for like um, from female physicians to kind of talk to, to like see how, you know, how they did it and what their experience was. And since like as a medical student, I joined JOMA um, and I mean, JOMA was like kind of developed when I started medical school. So I think that like, it's just so much easier to get those connections and those networking. That's so. amazing. That's really great. That's that's really great to hear. Um, if you could go back in time, given the experience and perspective you have now, is there anything you'd want to have done differently? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. Um, I think a couple things, um, not too many things, but I think a couple things. Um, like just looking back, I mean, medical training and um, having a family at the same time was just, uh, you know, obviously very, very overwhelming time-wise. Um, and it was really hard to kind of have anything else in my life. Um, and I feel like looking back, actually, like I, I really, unfortunately, like lost track of a lot of my old friends um, that, you know, I really, you know, kind of looking at people who had less craziness in their 20s, you know, may have been able to maintain those connections better. Um, you know, I think, like, you know, I have great friends now that I'm very, very grateful for, but I think, you know, kind of really work on maintaining, I think, um, is something that I would have done differently, you know, could I do it again? I think also like, you know, what I talked about before, you know, I, I was really, really, really focused on learning how to be a clinician, which I don't regret at all. And I still think that's like the most important thing that I do. Um, but, you know, kind of later on, I had to learn other things on the fly, right? Like I learned how to, you know, do administrative work on the fly. Um, you know, would I have in retrospect kind of spent more time sort of more systematically learning, you know, how to run programs? Like, yeah, I think that would have been great had I done that. I mean, I think similarly also like clinical research, like is so important. Um, and I feel like I'm very, very equipped to like, you know, read papers and evaluate them and and that sort of thing. But um, I think to just have had more of a foot in the door in terms of clinical research, because it's just such an important part of what we do. And that was just never really something that was part of my practice. But on the other hand, you can't do everything. So, you know, tough to know what would have had to have dropped then. But those are sort of the things that I regret not having you know, devoted more time and energy to. Um, and I just wanted to end off by asking you um, what advice you would like to leave the pre-med and medical students listening to the podcast with. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think, like, you know, a lot, a lot of people, um, fortunately, like, I, I fielded a lot of questions from people about whether this is the right path for, for them and whether it's too hard and kind of what sacrifices they would have to make. Um, and, um, you know, and it's not the right choice for everybody. Um, I think you really do have to really, really want it. Um, so I would also like to end off by asking you what advice you would like to leave the pre-med and medical students listening to the podcast with. Okay. So yeah, no, that's a great question. And I, I, I feel like I have fielded a lot of questions from people who 
were, I think, you know, really legitimately struggling and unsure with whether this was the right path for them. Like, you know, what sacrifices were they going to have to make? And was this really, you know, what was best for them? Um, and the answer is different for everybody. Um, I think that, um, it, it's really, like I said before, it's like really, really, really important to like really, really want it. Like if it's not something that you really, really, really want, um, it may not be the right choice for you because there are going to be times that are more challenging. There are times that are very, very rewarding, but there are also times that are really quite challenging. Um, and it, it can be hard to get through those times if, if you know, if, if you're not sort of keeping this like goal of like, this is really what I really, really, really want in mind. Um, I think that, you know, I've definitely, I've had people come to me and say, you know, at various stages of, you know, their medical training when things are really difficult for them and say, you know, I'm really struggling right now. I'm really miserable. Like, does this mean like I made the right, wrong choice and this is not for me? Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily the case. It's not, doesn't mean that you've always made the right choice. And I think there are, you know, it's important to evaluate that. Um, but there will be times over the course of medical training that are, you know, challenging and even prolonged times um, where you may really not like be thrilled to be going where you're going in the morning. Um, and I don't know that that means that like a career in medicine is not right for you. I mean, a lot of what we do in training, you know, for better or for worse are things that, you know, you know, you may or may not choose to do later on in your career. So, um, you know, I, I think, um, it, it is, it is, it is very doable, but it is, you know, there are, le there are legitimate concerns that people have that need to be taken seriously and thought through very carefully. Um, and I just, I think also like right now, like this is a great time. Like there's so many opportunities for mentorship now within the Orthodox community um, for, and, you know, and for women in the Orthodox community within medicine, there are just so many more than there ever were. Um, and so like, take advantage of it, like ask lots of people, lots of questions. Um, it's, it's, um, it's really the best way to, the best way to learn. Thank you so much for joining us and providing us with this valuable knowledge and advice. Um, thank you so much for having me. Of course. I would like to remind our audience to please rate and review the Joma podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.